All right, good morning. It is Friday, January 3rd. Uh, this is the Debrief Podcast. I'm Josh Durso, joined in studio by Jackie Augustine and Ted Baker. Guys, welcome, welcome, welcome. 2020 is here, and some really weird stuff has happened over the last like week, it seems. <laughs> Yeah. It says on your plant pot, Happy Mary. Happy Mary. <laughs> um, Happy Mary 2020. Uh, so, oh God, we're going we're gonna to start with the, um, we'll start with the news that broke this week. Uh, Assembly Minority Leader Brian Kolb uh, was charged with DWI near his home earlier this week uh, in Victor on New Year's Eve after a one-car accident. Uh, he immediately released a statement apologizing to New Yorkers and constituents in his district, which includes Ontario and Seneca counties. Uh, many have called for him to step down from his leadership post. Others have called for him to resign entirely. And uh, another pocket of, of folks have just been like, meh, it is what it is. Um, I, I guess I want to start with the reaction. What Reaction to the the news itself and then I guess afterwards we'll kind of get into how this is sort of being treated across the board. Well, my opinions on DWI are no secret. I have no secret opinions anyway, I guess. But, um, uh, you know, I've written about um, I find DWI to be one of the most selfish offenses, so I find it most offensive of offenses. Um, that's a that's a lot of offenses. Yeah, uh, offense. Yes, it's a lot. That's piled on. Um, but I think what maybe what bothered me the most about Assemblyman Kolb's statement in the aftermath is n- there's no statement about what he intends to do about it, right? Like, I understand people are saying, oh, you should resign as minority leader, you should resign your post altogether. But I'm looking for the person who committed the offense to say, I understand the magnitude of what happened, and these are the affirmative steps I'm going to take to try and rehabilitate my image in the community, to better communicate why this was wrong, to take some steps. Like an apology is the least you can do, the absolute least you can do. I mean, right? It would have been worse if he just didn't say anything. But saying, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, is not really enough, I don't think. Yeah, I I thought it was interesting because I I actually, I guess I fall into the camp where I felt like his statement was more than the absolute minimum. Um, so a little better than what I've seen in the past from other from elected officials in general when they are in some sort of controversy, or, generally speaking. Um, but it's interesting to me that the part of it that sort of what is the right action to take? Because I think like when I think of what what you just said, Jackie, I'm, I'm saying to myself, well, from my own in my own pragmatic mind. I'm saying it, the apology part I don't even really care about. It's the the steps you're going to take or what is the plan or what is, what are the things you're going to do. Now, I'm going to assume that oftentimes when something like this happens, there's probably a degree of uncertainty inside their own inside their own camp on what is going to happen and how they are going to proceed and how the system is going to proceed because I, I don't think this is something that anyone expects to, to expects to be in. This is a situation that's kind of uh, unusual. But see, I guess I just simply don't accept that because for me, DWI seems like one of those things that is supremely avoidable. It's not like he went out for a New Year's Eve celebration, had a sip of champagne, and then ran his car off the road. He's a relatively big guy. He knew he was going somewhere. He made the decision that he needed to get back home in his state vehicle that evening at that time. I just don't find an apology that says, yeah, this was a lapse in judgment, after you've just written a thing saying that there's absolutely no excuse. So I, I really, I mean, to say it's a lapse in judgment is an excuse. So I, I think the, what you're, what's needed, what I was looking for, I mean, I have 
liked Brian Kolb. I mean, I thought a lot of the stuff he's done has been very good. I have, uh, you know, as opposed to former Senator Nazolio, I never really had a huge bone to pick with, with Brian Kolb. But this, I guess, surprised me because I feel like if you are a person of principle, if something like this happens, you have to understand that there is a consequence, and he doesn't even address the legal consequence in his statement. Mm-hmm. Ted? Well, I guess I have a little bit different opinion. I, I, I think he's already suffered a lot of consequences. The story was picked up nationwide. It's been in the New York Times. It's been on CBS News. And I think the other thing is being a politician that, you know, to immediately pledge that I'm going to spearhead anti-drunk driving efforts would look a little bit hypocritical. I mean, like you said, he wrote a column just a week ago. So I, I don't really think he owes us any more than an apology. I mean, he said he screwed up. And, you know, there's different kinds of drunk driving. There's the person who goes out who's .20 and they're plastered and they have no business behind the wheel. And there's the person who consumes alcohol, believes they've done so responsibly, believes they're okay, gets behind the wheel, and it turns out they're not, and they're .08. I don't they're know. as much a danger to anybody out. I mean, it's New Year's Eve night. People who maybe decided they were going to walk home could be on the shoulder of the road. I mean, you are as much a danger. If we do believe that drunk driving is wrong, is a danger, and that's why we regulate it at all. And if this is the limit, this .08 is what we have set as when people actually do pose a threat, that their driving is impaired, their judgment is impaired, it's, it is an offense against the public because it is a threat. Now, I mean, do I know people who have been harmed or killed in drunk driving accidents? Yes. Does that inform my opinion? Probably. But I believe that particularly an elected official, particularly a, an elected official in a leadership position in state government, ought to see that this is a serious offense. And at the very least should say something like, and I don't intend to try to weasel out of the legal ramifications of this. You know, well, but does that I go without ex- saying? I mean, do you really think he's going to try to weasel out, or that he's going to go do it again? I mean, I, I think that's kind of implicit in the apology. You know, hey, I've really screwed up here, and I mean, I mean, how far be, does it have to, to be go? fair? To be fair, I am not sure that he could get away with weaseling out of this. This is just this is just my my quick take. Ted, you and I were just talking before we came on here. Ontario County has, I think, one of, if not the highest DWI conviction rate in the state. It's been the highest in mm-hmm. the state for, I believe, 34 of the last 35 yeah. years. So I'm not sure how, and I think that, that goes partly to the reason why uh, District Attorney Jim Ritz appointed a special prosecutor mm-hmm. in the case to make sure that there is no appearance of impropriety in right, the, the right. process of it all. And I think Which, can just, I just comment on that for a moment? I, I, I find it fascinating that, that we're going to show that we're not treating him any differently by treating him differently. Why, why do we need a special prosecutor? Why don't we expect the people we hire to do jobs in the public sphere to do those jobs? Well, no, because, I agree with you. I don't think that anybody would... I don't think we should give an impression that any prosecution is partisan. Right. So, no, I agree with you And on this that. case in particular, it's so right. high profile, even if he had a legitimate defense, if his name were Joe Blow and he could hire one of those attorneys we see on TV and get off, I don't think he would do that because obviously it's, it, the political ramifications, if, even if, let's say he's not guilty, I don't think he, even if he felt he were not guilty, I don't think he'd try to defend himself in this case. I mean, I'm not trying to be cynical, but let's remember, of course I've forgotten his name because I'm terrible with names, but the former congressman before everything was redistricted who used to represent Western New York, who was found in the middle, Randy Cool. Right who was found in the middle of uh, what's now the Route 87 corridor, right? Passed out in the middle of the road, his second or third DWI. I mean, I just don't want to say that it's beyond the pale that an elected official might 
try to um, avoid the full consequences of their behavior. I don't want to say, and I, but that's the thing. Oh, it's I don't absolutely mean that. possible. I, I, a lot of people have tried to do it. I don't yeah. think that Leader Kolb will try to. Do I it. hope he won't, and I don't see him as that kind of person. But I didn't expect this either, so right. I just well, feel we like do. it should. Well, Okay, so wait a second. I just want to quickly jump back to the the point of why why appoint a special prosecutor in this case. I think, in in some respects, District Attorney Ritz has as much to lose as Assemblyman Kolb does in this scenario. If for some reason it did not play out to the fullest of ramifications against the assemblyman, the appearance of some sort of impropriety is almost worse than the actual impropriety, especially if you, and this is just because of my job, I've spent a lot of time over the last uh, two days reading reaction to this mm -hmm. on social media, and it was almost instant. The, the cynical side of reaction, the cynicism to the point of saying he will not be handled like everyone else, it was, pretty remarkable I think so as far as you know district attorney Ritz appointing a special pro or having a, a special prosecutor appointed frankly I, I I think it is a good idea and I know it is it does sort of run counter to the idea of treating him like every, treating cold like everyone else but you have to I mean we I all understand, understand that I this just, is not I, normal. what I'd like to see is for people in elected positions to do their jobs so do you do your job and prosecute, and if someone thinks there's something wrong with it, let them raise the objection. And especially in this case, where like I say, he he can't defend himself. Well, and the this other is thing too, too high profile. I, I think uh, with with Ritz being relatively new in his role, I think that also might play into it somewhat. I, I don't think if uh, District Attorney Tantillo had he been uh, at the helm handling this, and he took it on, took the case on himself, and didn't appoint a special prosecutor. I'm not really sure anyone or too many people would have raised too many questions about it. I, you know, it, it's, it's unique. It's a unique no, set I, of circumstances. I, like I said, I understand why they do it. I just It's the irony of saying we're not going to treat you any differently, so the first thing that we do immediately is treat him differently. So just my— How government works, I guess. Should he, should he resign? Should he resign, one, from his— Post as, as minority leader, we've heard one Republican um, speak out and say that he that he should resign from that post. We've heard other people say that he should resign wholesale. Um, what what do we what do we think, knowing what we know now, um, as far as what that expectation should be? And should this be grounds? I guess the the broader no question no. is: should this be grounds for you know? future future legislation, I guess, where if you are accused of such a thing and you are an elected official, you should immediately have to resign and, and be pulled from your position because that also is some of the feedback that we've been seeing. Well, first, let's clarify, nobody should ever have to do anything because they've been accused of something. They should be convicted before we have any. Uh, unfortunately, we've begun to equate accusation with guilt in our society. So, Fair point. But, but saying, anyway, my opinion no is no. no and no, and, and we've been through this on other topics. Uh, you know, as a person in media, I'm very sensitive to the idea. Many times people in our profession, when we misspeak, are immediately expected to resign. I don't think, I, I, I don't see any, any reason why this offense should affect his position in the legislature in any way. Jackie? Well, um, I, I guess... If it's a difficult, it's a difficult decision because um, it's hard for me to understand the point of view or the decision-making process that leads to this. Because for me, again, I think DWI is different than some other offenses. I mean, DWI, you know, you've you are tested you take the breathalyzer like it's it's not somebody's judgment about what happened or uh, what's going on I mean it it's a limit you're above the limit that's that's the charge so I guess I would say this 
I have heard many people say that um, there are a lot of other people who've done the same thing and that means that he should be able to stay. I do not like that whataboutism that we're so engaged in in America today where we think, oh, well, we should just index what people should do by what other people have done. And if we're going to let other people continue in their position, then we should say this person should continue as well. I don't agree with that. I think each case should be looked at on its own merits. Um, I think Assemblyman Kolb should do what he thinks is right. And I think it will be very telling about what kind of legislator he thinks he is, what kind of legislator he thinks we deserve in determining what he should do. I'm not about to tell him he should step down. If it were me and I got a DWI, I would step down. I would think that that was such a breach of public trust, I would step down. I also don't drink, so I know, I'm not, you know, but, but he needs to make that decision for himself, and that will communicate to all of us whether we agree with him. Do we agree that these are the characteristics that an elected official, is this the best we can do? And also, can I just point out one other thing? You, you, you said a moment ago that it's not, uh, that it's a, a hard, cut and dried sort of decision. Let us remember that DWI is very politicized. The limit used to be 0.10. It's now 0.08. I have no doubt whatsoever there will be future pushes to push it even lower. There already has been, and that was going to actually be my uh, so follow-up it, question. It isn't just about impairment. There's a lot of politics going on here, too. There are people who would like the limit to be 0, zero. Right. Um, is that bad? I think, well, okay, well, let's well, hold on. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's a let's, whole other, let's, we, we can get people it. consume alcohol in okay. our society. We're going to get into that in a second because okay. I do want to talk about that. But um, just to sort of address the, the couple, those couple questions, should he resign? Should he resign from his leadership post? Um, two things. I think it's up to the minority conference if they want him as his, right. as the leader. Um, and then I think it's up to voters to decide whether they want him to, and I'm not talking about, you know, informal Facebook polls or, you know, like people ranting on Facebook or any other social media about what he should or shouldn't be doing. Um, I think it's up to it's up to voters. And, you know, truth be told, and this might sound maybe this sounds a little cynical in terms of what our political system is. Um, if Election Day were tomorrow, I think Brian Kolb would still win his win his seat back easily. And he probably would, but I think he would have a better political career, a better, more in line with personal values, if he said, I find this disqualifying, I'm going to take the following steps to figure things out for myself, and I still want to be your assemblyman, and then let people have that. And I think... I think part of the, maybe that is part of the equation for him. Maybe that is part of the broader plan. But I just don't think, I go back to when you're in sort of that, that crisis management mode, which is exactly what they go into after something like that happens. Their team is scrambling to try and figure out what they need to say, how they need to say it, this, that, and the other thing. All of those things that we're taking days and days to sort of consolidate and think right. about just aren't being processed in real time. Those things will, I'm going to assume, just judging from his track record in the past, um, that those things will be part of his, his process moving forward. Um, but that said, it's, it's up to voters. And, and I just, I feel like there's an irony because I know we, we don't, you mentioned the whataboutism, mm -hmm. and I, you cannot look around and use the Finger Lakes as an example. Um, there are people serving who have had DWIs. Mm -hmm. There are people serving in prominent positions who have had DWIs. And you know what? Is it a disqualifying factor? Does it, does it make you unable to be an effective elected leader in the community right. well, if you get a DWI? And, and we have to set a line somewhere. I mean, obviously, there has to be some level of offense which is disqualifying. But on the other hand, if we set it too low, then who do we have left to hold public office? Oh, well, now that is a cynical view. 
Okay, no, I, so I, well, I don't mean it to be cynical. What I'm saying is we're all flawed. None of us is perfect. I agree. I agree. public servants. I so agree. Nobody there is There has to perfect. be some level of forgiveness for some level of offense. I don't know what that level is. That's, well, I think part of it is how honest are people about where they find themselves and why they find themselves um, falling short of what we think our expectations might be, right? So yes, you're absolutely right. I, I And you know, I think that there are people who, um, who politically I have supported who are certainly not perfect and have been guilty of offenses that I would consider disqualifying. I think the question is, um, how do they address that? And then when you get to that next decision point, do you as a voter have the information that you need about that person to be able to assess whether or not they can carry out the job in the way you think is best? Well, and I think also, too, I, I think Josh sort of alluded to it. I don't think we've heard the last on this from the assemblyman. I think when, when the process plays out, if he in fact he is convicted, I think he will have more to say about it at that point and maybe more of some of the things yeah. that you want to hear. I hope so because he's in a position where he could exercise real leadership, not just politically but morally and just in terms of, again, setting expectations for what people um, should I will say that was one of the things to. that I thought was refreshing about what he said after the from his initial remarks was it didn't feel like that purely canned statement that we in the media get anytime someone gets into hot water of some kind in general. And there was an element of, you know, it happened, there's, you know, we have to let the process play out. This is kind of where I am. And, you know, I'm sorry to the constituents and I'm sorry to New Yorkers in general. And, you know, that's sort of, there was almost a, a commonality, I guess, or at least that's how I, I read it uh, in that statement. Well, but, and, and let us remember too, that he's in the fishbowl now. I mean, I don't yeah. think you're going to see him go out to very many wine tastings and jump right. in his car afterwards right. going forward. Right. Okay, so the question, though, let, let's dive into this topic. I know we didn't plan on it, but um, it's fitting. Just It was either last year or the year before, I can't recall. Um, there was a strong push, a, a fairly strong push from some pockets to lower um, the the limit for DWI from 0 0.08 to 0 0.04. Um, it was met with big resistance. And for, I think, a lot of reasons. Should the limit be lowered? And is this a good example of why the limit should be lowered? Because one of the things that I saw in a lot of uh, coverage of uh, Assemblyman Kolb's uh, situation was that it didn't reach aggravated DWI level, meaning he didn't, he didn't blow a, a 0.18 on the breathalyzer, but he was over 0 0.08 and he crashed his vehicle. Does this suggest then that the limit needs to be lower than 0 0.08? Because suppose it was 0 0.09 or 0 0.10. There, how much of a difference is there between 0.799 and 0 0.9 or 0.09? I think if the limit were to be lowered, it should be done so for scientific reasons, not political and pressure mm -hmm. reasons, which unfortunately is what's driving the debate right now. We we get very upset about DWI. We get much less upset about people cycling through their 12-screen touch menu on their car or checking their Instagram account on their phone. I just saw an ad during one of the bowl games the other day for a new model of Jeep that features a 15-inch touchscreen. So we're essentially, now we're putting televisions in cars. So when I see the outrage at that equal the outrage at drunk driving, then I'll be a little less cynical and more believing that we're really concerned about keeping people safe and not pursuing some political agendas. I think that's a good point, and I would agree. This is a question for the scientists, right? People know about the human brain reaction time. I have no idea what at what point somebody is impaired such that they pose a public safety risk, that they're more likely to ride on the shoulder, to cross the center line, to miss a turn, to take it too wide. I don't know. I do not know what that is. But I think the correct public policy is that people who are 
in a state for whatever reason they've chosen, right? Whatever the distraction is or the impairment is, um, ought to be subject to serious reprimand and consequences because at that point it is just the luck of the draw whether you injure somebody right it's just a matter of is there another person animal vehicle in the space that you've lost control and entered into so i mean it's not there's not a lot separating i mean the idea is criminally you know we escalate depending on the amount of damage you cause but really that is something out of your control. The thing that's within your control is your operation of the motor vehicle. So I, yeah, let the science set the laws. I think as someone who does drink alcohol, I, I, I don't really think going any lower is really necessary. I think probably .08 is about right. And I, that, I, I have no scientific knowledge. Well, or and this is so, not an original point to me. This is something that was shared with me, which sounded like incredibly great sense. So I feel like I should at least toss it out there. Um, maybe we wouldn't be having these same conversations if we lived in a community where public transportation was actually an option. Not that I think Assemblyman Cole would have gotten himself on a bus, but I'm just saying here New York State wasn't allowing Uber. Like we had all of these roadblocks to actually providing people with viable options. So maybe some good that could come from this would be a serious look at the upstate transportation network because you know, you're if you want to take the view that well, everybody's going to be drinking and not everybody's going to be drinking just in their own home, then you if there are no transportation options, then well, and more and more bars have become aware. I mean, bars a lot of times will advertise, we'll call you somebody, we'll get a cab, or now in, in Uber or Lyft or something. So, uh, it, but and, and that goes back to what we talk about a lot of times about lawmakers not sort of seeing the whole picture and legislating on the crisis of the day because that's a very good point so so instead of devoting a lot of resources to whether people should drink or drive let's just make it so they don't ever feel like they need to right right yeah i I think so i'm not really sure i i agree that i think there should be scientific reason for lowering or raising or moving the number at all i'm going to assume that there had to have been back when it was lowered from Point, uh, point 0.0 to point 0.08 that there was probably some science or something attached to it? I think little it? to none. I okay. think it was so, political pressure. Politics. Uh, people like MAD have become sort of their own little industrial complexes and they raise lots of money. And Okay. I so you said too much. My, <laughs> my issue with any move to lower, um, and this will sound really callous to say, but there's an economic impact to this this legislation right or wrong there is a there is an economic impact to this especially in the finger lakes wine country um again only if there is not transportation but there isn't going to be can i just say that like i've been sitting here for five years doing my other podcast and sitting here having conversations with elected leaders and and community activists and all these people regional leaders assemblymen senators congressmen they're all talking they all say it and it sounds really great on when you're campaigning but nothing's happened upstate transportation is as god-awful as it was five years ago and my prediction is that it will be as god-awful in five years as it is now because we're losing population and this is sort of a separate separate tangent here but it is going to be after this next census round it is going to be even more difficult to find the funds to find the justification to have this really complicated interwoven transportation system that doesn't just work inside of like one or two counties but works throughout the entire region because of how desolate the finger lakes actually is well and they they aren't public but there are several van services i mean if Mm -hmm. i want to go to five wineries and do tastings i can do so fairly inexpensively right by calling up one of these limo or van services but there aren't for the volume and also realizing that a lot of the folks who are um driving the the revenue in the finger lakes are also um they're they're tourists in all, mm-hmm. in a lot of cases right. so you know you have this this learning curve that you sort of have to teach to people in real time i kind of i was 
laughing the other day because I we were I was out to eat with some friends, and it was a, a bar and restaurant. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if right next to the Touch Tunes kiosk there was essentially like an Uber or Lyft kiosk? Yeah, that employees or people mm-hmm. inside wow. the 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 bar could use yeah. because one of the big things, one of the big struggles that I sort of see demographically in the Finger Lakes is that there is, I would say from like 45 to 50 and up, which is becoming a larger and larger piece of the pie as far as who's living in, in some of these communities. You're there talking is, about ages? Yeah. There I'm still is under a, it. Okay, there is a, <laughs> I a, left that demo a long time ago. <laughs> right. There is a slowness to adopt to technology and the things. I can count on one hand the number of people who are frankly, above 50 years old, who I know locally in these types of communities that use Uber and Lyft. No, I agree with and you. And also, there there aren't really enough Uber and Lyft drivers in these communities yes. to justify but part you know, of that is, support, I should say. Wasn't it only last year that we were able, able to even really get right. oh, services yeah. like Uber and Lyft yeah. up, off the ground? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's interesting. I'm not that I think anything should be determined by one-off little stories, but I will share this one-off little story that I was at the Bellhurst, and um, there was a couple there from Tennessee in the demographic that you mentioned, older than I am, much older than I am. And they um, they were using Lyft, or no, they were using Uber, to go from uh, the Bellhurst up to White Springs Manor. And somebody said to them, well, that's not really that far away, right? Because, you know, Bellhurst owns both properties and you can go one to the other. And they said, well, why would we take the chance, right? Like, we want to enjoy ourselves here at the castle, have dinner, we're having a lot of wine, we're doing these tastings. It costs $5 and it takes five minutes for us to just be safe and not take the chance. Which I thought that is exactly the kind of marketing and messaging that we should be in the wine region promoting. Well, and that's also, I mean, it's societal change as attitudes evolve. I mean, maybe this next generation of 20-somethings today will be completely horrified by the idea of having any alcohol and getting behind the wheel. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, some of these changes just right. come slowly. right. And then, of course, the other thing, we, we talked about this before, it, it's probably a lot easier to get an Uber at the Bellhurst Castle than it is if I'm in Willard. Yes, you, right. You know, I mean, right. we're, we're, a, we're a convenience society, so mm-hmm. do I want to wait for 45 minutes for the one driver in southern Seneca County to be free to come get me? Well, that's why you should move to Geneva, because we have a food and beverage <laughs> innovation district, and you can walk there, and you can walk home. <laughs> well, and that's... And I think that's my problem. We have problem. a funded innovation hub downtown now. Right. That is, that's my problem with most of the conversation around, well, just move somewhere where it is. Okay, well, if that's the case, then all these villages and towns just aren't going to exist in 30 years. And you know what? Like, that's just, that is what it is. And they're probably not. And frankly, I mean, that's, we've had that discussion on that whole overall. That's actually on my state. list okay. of under a different topic to talk okay about. so okay. let's let's shift gears um last week um i spent a, a good chunk of the end of the week and the weekend um covering a board meeting which should have been a pretty simple board meeting end of year meeting uh the seneca county board of supervisors entered executive session illegally uh during their final meeting of the 2019 year uh, while some elected officials uh, defended the move, it was confirmed by an opinion issued by the Committee on Open Government in Albany. Uh, four supervisors were absent, and three supervisors voted against the motion, meaning that the majority of those present who voted to enter executive session was not not an actual majority of the full board, which mm-hmm. is the legal requirement. Um, reaction, I, I, I've been so embedded in this for the last week, I don't even want to talk about it anymore wrote a column about it. I've got three stories that are posted inside the story that's, that's live right now on fingerlakes1.com underneath the podcast. Um, check them out. I'm not talking anymore. Jackie, go. Well, I am so glad that you followed up on this because um, abuses of executive session are probably one of the reasons that upstate has not flourished to the extent that it otherwise might have. That is my opinion. I'm going to double down on that, that 
legislators who do not understand the rules and who think that expedience or convenience or just fear of what someone might think of them means it's okay to do business behind closed doors are part of the reason that there was so much stagnation for so long. And I think people would push back on that and say, well, they weren't really talking about anything of significant consequence that we couldn't have found out somewhere else. That's not the point. The point is, when you have a legislative body that would rather protect private interests than the public interest, you've got yourselves a problem. And that's why the Committee on Open Government exists. I'm glad they got called. I'm glad they gave real-time instruction. I'm not glad the board didn't follow it, but I am glad that this is getting attention because the first duty of any elected official should be to follow the rules, which means first, knowing what the rules are, and second, actually not going along with actively skirting them. You know, I've I've been in various levels of media for 40 plus years. I, I don't know why, but there's always, there seems to be a built-in bias towards secrecy mm-hmm. over openness in almost every elected board of any type. And I, I really just don't understand why. I, I think I think you laid out some of the reasons, but I it just, I don't understand why more boards don't Somebody doesn't stand up and say, this is going to come back to bite us on the butt. Well, Why don't we be more open yeah. than more secret? It's, it's always that bias towards secrecy. And I think it's, it's a lot of what you talked about because yeah. I, a lot of the actual work of governing happens where the public doesn't get to see it. And that isn't the way it's supposed to be. Yep. I mean, I, I think, you know, if you look at, and I keep, I'm sorry to keep harping on Geneva, but I, if you look at the way in which economic development in Geneva really kind of blew up in a good way uh, when Stu Einstein was the mayor. What was his whole thing? His entire focus was, we're doing the people's business and we're going to do it in public. And we are not going to have a bunch of secret meetings unless we meet one of the very limited circumstances, which is actual actual litigation you can't just say we might get sued about this that is that's like the biggest misconception you could get sued about anything that's a justification for putting everything behind closed doors but that's not what the law says the law says it has to be actual pending litigation um you know someone's personnel file i understand to a certain extent some personnel should be discussed in public, you know, a a city manager, um, a police chief. But if you're talking about, you know, hiring a um, clerk in the, you know, public works department, I understand certain things should should not need to be aired publicly. Um, But yeah, I'm. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't know exactly where I was going okay. with this, other than to agree. With no, I, well, you I was going to bring that up. That's that, the other. The 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 two broad umbrellas that are always used. One is litigation. One is personnel. And I mean, well, you're all personnel, so right. you can put anything under that umbrella if you want to. But okay. you probably shouldn't. A lot of times. I just time. want to jump in. the The argument in this case was, and I I I have some sense, and I, I'm going to share it in a second. Um, They framed this under litigation because there was, I'm forgetting the exact word, um, some sort of non-disclosure agreement between um, the two private parties who were involved in this dispute that ultimately, and that that was on paper their reason for shielding it under executive session. My my non-legal mind is looking at this and saying, well, didn't he violate the, the... If you have an agreement between two private parties and that private party goes in a closed-door session with only so many people around but still spills the beans on what, what is inside that agreement, hasn't that person already violated the agreement? Well, and the point is the agreement is not between the municipality or the county right. and the individual. So, In I this mean, case, it isn't something that the county should have even really been getting involved with to the point of giving that person or any party the shield of executive session. 
right through it right and i mean this has happened over the years in geneva so many times you get into executive session and you turn out it's just that someone didn't want to say publicly because it's a little uncomfortable and they don't really want the details in the newspaper well i'm sorry your desire to be comfortable does not trump the public's right to know that is just not the law and it's also not right so i just I have very little tolerance for abuses of executive session because they are used to shield public officials from doing the job of being public officials. And if you if you don't have the fortitude to say what needs to be said and accept the consequences, get out of the office. Okay. So and uh, no action no action was taken in this that you in know. this instance. No action was taken. But we was action set up for future discussion? I mean, that's right. what people fail to realize. Right. If, is there a nod? Is there an agreement? Is there an, okay, we'll take that up next month? That's how these things go. And it's not right. So I, I think from this individual circumstance, for those who might be, be wondering, um, it does seem like a legitimate case of blindness to what the rule is which is concerning for its own right its own i don't think that there was any now have there has there been in the past a, a situation where they have entered into executive session to you know for cynical reasons or for some of the cynical reasons that we're kind of batting around here possibly but in this case it was i i think what i found most egregious about it was the fact that it was literally that they had to be fact-checked on this. And by the way, the question that sort of looms in general, and I've, I've been given some little bits of, of confirmation here or there that everything is fine, but what other votes are called into question now because the board wasn't aware of what the minimum requirements were on votes? I think a lot of times, if not most of the time, it's ignorance, but it's ignorance driven from a point of view of secrecy. Right. That that's where I'm in full agreement with Jackie. I it, that has always driven me nuts. And and again, it's just err on the side of openness. Yes. You 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 probably rarely are going to get yourself into trouble by being too open and too transparent with the public. Right. You're going to get yourself in trouble a lot of time by being the other way. I mean, that's do what you would tell your kids, right? I mean, it's always worse to keep it covered up. It is always worse. Yeah. It's interesting, I think, because there is, you know, I'm, the question that I'm left with now that I still haven't gotten a good answer on is what does this mean for, if this wasn't a vote on executive session and it were just a, a vote on anything else and it turned out the way it did, it would also be null. Like, right. it, like this, it, this has gotten a lot more attention than it normally would because we're talking about it has the context of an executive session. But this, and this is why I, I, I asked directly to the, I asked the county, what other rulings, what other decisions, what other motions, what other resolutions have been passed without meeting the basic legal minimum? Because for as long as I have been covering the Board of Supervisors in Seneca County, majority of those present has been the rule. That has been the the guys under which they have voted since since I've been there in in late 2014, early 2015. And that, to me, that's the question. That's the question that looms. And as I look at the clock, there's no way we're going to have time yeah. to get into the the um, all of the the governor's proposals. Um, but there is one other thing. We'll save that for another episode because, as of yesterday, he's still releasing proposals. Um, he vetoed. So let's talk about Governor Cuomo. Um, he vetoed a bill in early December that would have allowed for a study of basically a rural upstate broadband network, state-sponsored. Reaction has been kind of mixed, but I think it's really interesting that if you go on the governor's website and you go to his press release section and his news section, there is no, you cannot find a veto message. You cannot find, or at least I couldn't find, I I looked extensively. All I was able to find was uh, some really good reporting from the Democrat and Chronicle on this one. Um, but essentially, he vetoed this bill that both chambers and presumably um, both sides of the aisle were pretty content with to study, not to implement, to study rural broadband in upstate New York. It would have been 
um, in addition to the rural or the broadband for all program that the, the governor signed, that $500 million behemoth that uh, was implemented through essentially the, the major cable companies and, and broadband providers in New York State, Charter Spectrum, Frontier, et cetera. Um, it amazes me. If there, if there were ever a point where we could look at, at something and say, this governor does not care about rural parts of the state, this is it. This is, this is the one, in my opinion. This is the one. There, and a lot of other people say there are plenty of other, other examples. Josh, you just got to look harder. But this is, this is, to me, the one that stands out because it isn't, it isn't a thing, right? Like it isn't an action. It's a study. It's literally just the idea of looking at a problem, which I'm hoping that all three of us can agree that, that access to broadband in rural parts of Mm-hmm. The Finger Lakes and Southern Tier and Western New York is definitely a problem. Sure, um, but it it just amazes me that this was this was killed unceremoniously without much uh, without much explanation. Uh, the governor basically said, um, you know, cost and feasibility is too much of an issue, so we're not even gonna we're, I'm not even gonna sign this study, which which to me again just doesn't make a lick of sense. It doesn't it doesn't doesn't add up. So I'm curious what, when you hear it and when you see it, what 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 is the reaction to it? I say follow the money. <laughs> My guess is that the some of the monopoly broadband providers don't want anyone else getting into that territory. They don't want to provide service to that territory yet, but they don't want anyone else to. It's not uh, I, like I would it's check going... and see what sort of campaign contributions Governor Cuomo that's, gets. That's exactly from what the I'm looking up. Of charter <laughs> that's and exactly what I'm looking up right yeah. now. I mean, that, that's. I mean, am I being as as Ellen DeGeneres famously said? No matter how cynical you are, it's not enough to keep up. I and I would like to say because I feel like I'm usually an optimist. I wouldn't say it's cynicism. It is. Let's look at how public policy is generally shaped anywhere in the country, right? New York is not an exception to this. If there is something that on the face of it looks like it might make sense and all of a sudden it goes away without any clear indication why, go to the campaign contributions. Go to see who the players are and what's going on. And... um, I, don't, I mean, the first thing I pulled up is an article um, from actually exactly a year ago today talking about the fight between various players, uh, Charter, Frontier, um, RTO, which I've not heard about, Empire Access, to come into the Finger Lakes and Upstate and how that's playing out politically. So clearly there's more going on. But let me just say, I usually do support studies because I think public policy should be founded on data and good ideas. Study. That's all you. That's I, all this was doing. Study. However, maybe if there is already some foregone conclusion, maybe we're better off not spending the extra money on the study if it's going to work out that way anyway. That is my cynical response to that particular thing. Um, but I don't think that's the clearest way of proving that Cuomo's neglecting upstate. But that's <laughs> See, well, other. okay. So my my issue seems to be that there was this very public, and it had to, it couldn't have been much more than a year ago. Um, Cuomo was trying to get Charter Spectrum unmerged and pushed out mm-hmm. of the pushed out of the state. For God's sakes, he was talking about revoking their license, right. and he openly said that they were not fulfilling their obligation through the broadband for all that's what it, that's what well, his argument essentially was that they weren't can say a lot of things that's but, when when somebody issues a proclamation like that check back and see if they've actually done anything about it or okay. if it was just for public consumption see i got after those big cable guys now where's my check but the two are not necessarily in conflict i mean it doesn't mean that he necessarily warmed up to charter spectrum I mean, if there are these other players on the scene, they might be the ones pushing this. We, but I can't, I mean, I haven't pulled up the campaign contributions yet, but I think we'll, that is the right track. I definitely think that's the right track. We'll revisit this. I'm actually working on a separate podcast that, that is going to get into some of the specifics with the broadband expansion 
that's being worked out in Yates County. So there are there are there are efforts on this on this front playing out. Um, I just think it's funny. Like there's the open admission that the private sector is never going to want to touch a lot of these really rural communities. Um, and by by Governor Cuomo vetoing this quietly a year ish after having a very public fight with Charter Spectrum about them not following through on their end of the agreement for the broadband for all side. Uh, it just it seems really, you know, like there's no hope. Well, like, we went through just this like a no hope situation. a generation ago with rural electrification. That was the same argument yeah. that we can't bring electricity to all these far flung farmhouses. It'll cost us too much. Okay, so we have a couple extra minutes. I do want to hit. Um, what is the proposal that you have seen thus far from the governor that seems most interesting? Is there one to you that stands out? To me, the thing that stands out from my perspective about all of them is that they feel really watered down and they feel really vague. They feel much much more vague than they have in the past. Um, and maybe it's because they're not quite – they don't theme together as well as they have in years past. It seems like his – the governor's agenda in the past has been much more hyper-specific on certain areas, justice, uh, socioeconomic equality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This kind of seems to be, so far, everything seems to be all over the place, um, like high-speed rail across New York State. We can we can apparently study high-speed rail, but we can't have access to internet in upstate New York. Are you serious right now? Like this is, I, I'm, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here. Um, uh, so what are proposal or two, Jackie, that stands out to you as far as interesting, feasible, workable, good, um, or lousy? I'm sorry. I focused more on the what's missing question. Okay. So, uh, but let me, let me say, I think of the list so far, um, the debt collection one is the one that I glad is finally in the mix because I do think that. Um, an unregulated unregulated debt collection marketplace, while it might help certain people, I'm sure that Congressman Reed is going to be doubling down his critiques of Cuomo about this, given that his background is in medical debt collection. But I think that understanding that in New York State, um, especially as it relates to medical debt, people have gotten themselves into a bad spot and really don't need the additional trauma of being harassed all the time by people because they haven't paid you know, their bill for their dialysis. Um, I think that's kind of, the, again, the least that New York State could do to help people out. Um, yeah, that's, that's the only one that jumps out at me. Mm -hmm. What jumps out at me are two things I think are missing, but that's, I'll save that. Ted? Well, I guess the two that, that interest me the most, and, and I guess we can have the whole general discussion about this whole concept and, and how it kind of ignores the fact that we're about $9 trillion in the hole and can't pay for any of this stuff anyway, uh, are the, the health care ones, lowering prescription drug costs, creating a health care cost website. Because I've always felt like the, I think we're having the wrong conversation on health care. The United States per capita, the last figure I saw, we spend it somewhere around ten dollars to $11,000 per person. Every single other developed nation on earth delivers health care pretty much as good or better than ours for half to a third of that cost. Yep. But in, we, we, you know, Obamacare and private insurance and Medicare for all and single payer, we have all these conversations instead of the conversation, why are we paying so much more for the same thing than everybody else? What has the entire rest of the planet figured out that we haven't? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Some of these just seem really, really strange when I when I look at them and in sort of in in comparison to what the state can do. So creating the creating a healthcare website to monitor costs. How is that going to even play out when it's been openly admitted that prices vary? by individual or by individual plan. And there isn't, we just heard all of the, the hospital folks say last year or the year before that, you know, there isn't a set price for X service. Right. Or yeah, I would y love to see thing. a website that just publishes the CEO and other 
top-tier administrators' salaries, benefits, and bonuses for all of these healthcare nonprofits and the HMOs and other plans around the state. That might be some data that would open people's eyes. Yeah, I mean, like you said, there's no transparency. If I want to buy a gallon of milk, I know what it costs here, I know what it costs here, I know what it costs here. If I need procedure X, if I if you called up a healthcare provider and said you know what's it cost to fix a broken leg, they wouldn't know how to answer you. Right. The first thing they do is ask you what insurance you had, right. and if you said none, they'd go oh my god and transfer you to eleven different people. You never get an answer. There's there's no transparency whatsoever. Yeah, I think, and as as I'm looking at the list here, I, I think a couple just strike me as a little. Um, a little bit, they need more. Okay, so let's say that these are the ones for my for my money that need more. Um, the the crack the crackdown on vaping. Um, I think that this is one of those surface level ideas that is thrown out there just to get the mass appeal f- to catch that from the buzz that's happening now around this issue. Um, the the lowering prescription drug costs for everyone. I'm not really sure how this is, like going back to what you're saying, Ted, for a state that's in the hole, I'm not really sure how this is being implemented in a way that that makes sense and doesn't just crush New York or push New York further into a a bad place financially. Um, Advancing net neutrality protections, um, I'm not really sure how New York State plans on cracking down on the internet, but the internet goes <laughs> way beyond New York State. Um, No, we're not studying that anymore. You know, (laughs) and then there's some others like, that just seem, you know, I don't want to say this is me patting the governor on the back, but like there's some of them that just make sense and they're pretty simple. And at the same time, I'm saying to myself, why does this need to be like proclaimed as like a major, right. a major move, like eliminating what's known as the pink tax or, or the, the sort of the gender split on pricing on various things or, you know, blocking predators from social media. I mean, some of these things are just very basic pieces of legislation. Yes, some of them I'm like, wait, we hadn't done that already? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the vaping thing, all you need is a good publicity campaign showing pictures of people vaping because it looks ridiculous and if people knew what they look like doing it they wouldn't do it anymore but right. that's appeal to people's vanity well but, and but you know I've, we've talked about that i think a little bit and here's another case where some science would be in order because we're just the one of the first urges of people in politics is to ban things and it sounds like most of these deaths and most of the damage is being caused by not over-the-counter black market products. So banning cherry-flavored vaping stuff from Juul isn't really solving the problem. It's it's looking like you're solving the problem. That's one of my frequent criticisms of politicians is that they want to appear to be solving a problem rather than actually doing the hard work it would take to really solve it. Exactly. Um, and then also the other one that stuck out to me, uh, mandating automatic uh, manual recounts in elections that are deemed close. There, there are some specifics there that I want to see mm-hmm. sort of ironed out and what that legislation would look like. And frankly, all of these pieces of legislation would finally look like when adopted in the budget. They'll um, mostly look like a giant deficit. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. There, there, you, there you have a scenario where, you know, Introducing that in every election across upstate New York, I mean, that that will be a very expensive endeavor, for sure. Um, The cost of paying for it will be dumped on the counties. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, My last question for you guys. What is the thing that we're hopeful for in 2020 as we look forward? Give me something that, that gives you a little bit of optimism, if there is any left. I'm hoping the Red Sox will bounce back. Ah, there we go. <laughs> Jackie? Um, I went to the swearing-in for city council, Geneva City Council, and I felt, first of all, there were a ton of people there, which I thought was great because that means people, I hope, are engaged and interested in what's going on. It wasn't just family members of the people being sworn in. Some members of the community came out. And looking at the group, I got a feeling that, this could be an opportunity for Geneva to get out of the kind of standstill it had fallen into with a council that couldn't really get anything done and actually 
you know, start moving forward on things that actually affect regular, everyday people's lives in a positive way. Well, and, and that's my answer, I guess, in a serious note, is just more people power. We, we, yeah. the, the things we've talked about, the, the things getting done behind closed doors, the more people are engaged and involved, the less that happens, the less that's possible to happen. So I, I think, I, I believe that Geneva Council is a great sign it's a council that looks like the people they're representing. For the most part, you know, yes. Let's, let's see more of that all across our governments. Yeah. And, Ted, where can folks listen to you Monday through Friday? On the Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio. In Geneva, that's 95.9 and 1240 WGVA. In Auburn, it's 98.1 and 1590 WAUB. And hopefully coming soon on rural broadband near you. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and we will be back here next week. Until then, stay informed and download the FingerLakes1.com app. That's the easiest way to get the headlines delivered right to your smartphone. Be well, guys.